this might be Valentine's Day, this is your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. And when it comes to grief, few countries in the world have experienced as much grief throughout its 220-year history as Haiti, which celebrated its anniversary of independence on New Year's Day of this year. However, that independence has been very, very much under question over the entire time Haiti has existed, because apparently the United States and the West, Europe, were very unhappy about the slave uprising that overthrew French occupiers, which led to the creation of Haiti. For the U.S. and the West, Haiti is an embarrassment that reveals a long history of white supremacy imposed upon not only the Haitian people, but throughout the Americas and, frankly, the entire world. In fact, the establishment press in the U.S. would rather you, or they, not mention Haiti at all. Whether it was Chile and their democratically elected Salvador Allende, who was overthrown in a U.S.-backed coup that propped up an authoritarian for decades, or the war in Vietnam, or Iraq, or the second war in Iraq, or Afghanistan, the U.S. has attempted to force its capitalism-skewed brand of democracy upon others down the barrel of a gun, and then impose a government not selected by the people, but instead chosen by U.S. leaders back in Washington. What is left behind is not democracy of any sort. Instead, it's what our guest describes as an aid state wherever it exists. And I know that my list of coups only went back to the overthrow of Salvador Allende, and that there are dozens and dozens and dozens more. So just keep that in mind as well during our conversation today, when in a few we will have the return of Jake Johnston, author of the new book, Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. Jake is a senior research associate at the Center for Economic Policy, Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. I've only had dozens of people on the show from this organization before, so I can't believe that I just stumbled over its name, the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Jake's research at CEPR has, that's a lot easier, has focused predominantly on economic policy in Latin America, the International Monetary Fund, and U.S. foreign policy. He has been the leading writer for the center's Haiti Relief and Reconstruction Watch website, since February of 2010, just weeks after a 7.0 earthquake devastated Haiti, which is where the book that we are discussing today begins. Jake has appeared on the show many times, including most recently in July of last year, 2023, when we spoke with him about his opinion piece that was published at the New York Times, The U.S. Still Can Do What's Right for Haiti, 
you'd think. Prior to that, Jake was on twice in 2017, wants to talk about his Intercept article, Senator-elect and former paramilitary leader Guy Philippe, Guy Philippe, arrested on drug charges, and he later returned that year to talk about the CEPR, writing, top U.S.-backed Honduran security minister is running drugs, according to court testimony. His work has appeared, like I said, in the New York Times, The Nation, ABC News, Boston Review, Truthout, and Intercept and elsewhere. Find out more about CEPR and Jake's writing at CEPR.net. Follow CEPR on X at CEPRDC. Find Jake on X at Jacob Johnston, and that's J-A-K, Jacob Johnston with a T. Producing is Becca Reidenauer. Let me ask you the same question I asked Will yesterday. Anything at all new in your world, Rebecca? I am officially going to become a sommelier. No kidding? Yeah. Are you taking the classes then? I am, yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. I know, I'm excited. So how much is that anyway? God, it's nearly a grand. Wow. Uh, but I'm but I'm, uh, I'm being sponsored by my employer, <laughs> so I'm lucky. That's great. Uh, Pete yeah. did that downstairs with all of his, uh, I don't know if it was all of his, but his staff at the time, he uh, got them all sommelier lessons because oh. they put wine on tap downstairs. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's very, that's awesome that they're doing that for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, Daphne gifted me a, a ambassador of Chilean wine. So I'm going to take that course as well. Oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah. That's Daphne Agassin, who was a former producer on this show. Wow, that's fantastic. I'm looking forward to drinking wine with you in the future. <laughs> Same. In case you missed it, uh, there was some breaking news over the past weekend that is related to a conversation we had on the show two weeks ago to this day when we spoke with Seamus. Malika Fosley. <laughs> I'm going to kill the... He's going to kill me. Seamus Malakoff Zali, who posted the Boston, the Baffler uh, magazine article, More Fog, More War, The Brutal Illogic of the U.S. Attacks on Yemen. Turns out that the Jordanian Tower 22 military facility where 300 U.S. troops are stationed that was attacked by drones launched from Iraq by Kataib Hezbollah, killing three U.S. service members. Well, that Jordanian base has been used by the U.S. military for strikes inside Syria, Iraq and Iran for quite some time, making it a legitimate strategic target, which is something you will not hear on the network news or likely read in the New York Times. As The Intercept's Ken Klippenstein uh, on Friday, February 9th reported, Tower 22, the U.S. base in Jordan, where three American service members were killed last month, is not simply a logistics support base, as the Pentagon has claimed it is. What the Pentagon hasn't mentioned is that Tower 22 is also a drone base. Conducting long-range reconnaissance on militants in neighboring Syria and Iraq for airstrikes, according to two U.S. military sources. I mentioned Iran earlier, but that's Iranian forces within Iraq. The base also serves as a staging facility for special operations forces in a medevac helicopter home base. And while the Pentagon says Tower 22's mission was to combat the Islamic State, since Hamas's attacks and assault on Israel in October... Its focus has turned to Iranian-backed militia groups. An Air Force airman whose unit was recently stationed at the base told The Intercept to call Tower 22 a logistics support base is complete BS, but he did not abbreviate. The the main uh, purpose of Tower 22 is to operate drones to spy on insurgents in Iraq and Syria for targeting purposes. The main objective I witnessed was taking out 
targets. Tower 22, uh, Klippenstein reports, provided targeting intelligence to Air Force assets stationed at other bases in Jordan, such as Muwafak Saiti Air Base, to use in strikes, the airman said. Klippenstein adds, logistics was a small part of the mission. An early news story on the a drone attack that killed the U.S. service members cited unnamed officials discussing a preliminary report that the drone managed to enter Tower 22 because it was mistaken for another friendly drone return, returning to the base, as you have probably heard. However, the Intercept later reported that the base lacked adequate air defenses. It wasn't that it just snuck in. They just had poor defenses. Despite the account pointing to a uh, drone presence, few questioned the Pentagon's refrain that the base's purpose was logistics. In interviews with defense sources and experts, however, a picture emerges of Tower 22's purpose as a key base from which to support hostilities with Iran-aligned groups, even as the Biden administration insists that it does not want war with Tehran, the shift in its mission. From fighting ISIS to fighting groups linked with Iran has not been acknowledged by the Pentagon, which still insists, insists that it is part of its war on ISIS. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, according to Klippenstein, said that the troops killed by a kamikaze drone on January 28th were deployed there to, quote, work for the lasting defeat of ISIS. U.S. forces continue to operate in Syria under the legal basis of Operation Inherent Resolve, the Pentagon's name for the international campaign against ISIS that began under the Obama administration in 2014. But experts say it's unlikely that counter-ISIS mission is the main focus. In other words, and to sum up, the Obama administration launched war on ISIS is not over. Which means ISIS either has not been defeated, as the U.S. government has claimed it has been in the past, and the U.S. is still at war with ISIS, or it means the U.S. is using the now decade-long war, sorry, 11-year-long war on ISIS as cover for attacking Iran, provoking Iran into a war that the U.S. and establishment media will say, much like the war with Russia, was completely unprovoked, despite history and historical context telling us something very different. While it's certainly not as important as the U.S. government misleading the American public about war again in order to possibly justify a regional, if not a world war with Iran, Becca, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell comes from Garrett S., who left this suggestion on our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. Why do you think we will survive 2024? We included the why. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of This Is Hell merchandise, which you can see at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page, or you can post it at, uh, which is at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can post it at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole, and if you are not a member, you should join, or you can tweet it at us via x at thisishellradio, you can post it in our Discord community, or if you are a subscriber, you can post it on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Again, just to remind everybody, this week and the following two weeks, we are doing live shows Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays with Patreon podcasts on Fridays. Coming up, the hell that the U.S. imposes on the people of Haiti. Becca will share your answers to this week's question from hell as posted at our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook page. Jeff Dorchin will deliver a moment of truth. Becca, what's Jeff talking about during this week's moment of truth? Jeff looks at the magic Jenga block to remove to send fascism crashing down. I haven't played Jenga in forever. <laughs>
I've only played very large Jenga. Really? Yeah. That's the only one I want to play. <laughs> yeah, that's the I've only one. played the crappy one. one. <laughs> and Becca will also tell us who our final guest will be this week, live from the United States, where the press has the freedom to be propaganda this is hell. And there are very, very, very few subjects or topics that the establishment press here in the U.S. would rather spin to make the U.S. look like the good guys bringing humanitarian aid and democracy than in Haiti. Sure, the press distorts all news about U.S. foreign policy as benign and only trying to do the best for locals. But that's simply not the case. What the U.S. does instead is make nations like Haiti thoroughly dependent upon aid without creating any infrastructure that may lessen that dependence, and then imposes an unelected authoritarian. And then they tell us that if we don't support such horrible policies, we're un-American or we don't support the troops. Here to help us see through the fog of U.S. propaganda returning to This Is Hell is Jake Johnson. He is the author of the new book, Aid State Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Jake. A pleasure as always. I told you it would be less than six years until we have you on again. <laughs> it's only been like seven months. It's great to have you back on the show. Uh, so you write on August 14th, 2021, about 100 miles to the west of Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti, the tectonic plates lurking beneath the Earth's surface slipped producing a 7.2 magnitude earthquake, twice as powerful as the one that had hit in 2010, an event that had forever altered the history of the nation. Now, we're going to be talking about all sorts of disasters that have happened in Haiti uh, during our conversation today. But in an article at NPR on the science of the 2010 earthquake shortly after it happened, NPR noted that Haiti sits right at the spot where the tectonic North American plate and the Caribbean plate meet. Geographically, what does... Haiti, or even the Dominican Republic, which shares the island of Hispaniola, have to offer islanders. Before we talk about the disasters that have struck Haiti, what are its blessings, if you will? Because you have been there several times. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, you know, Haiti is a beautiful place. I mean, the Dominican Republic too, the whole island, right? I mean, this is a this is a place in the Caribbean. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't have the same reputation as many of its. Uh, its neighbors, but certainly the geography is the same. And I think beyond that, I mean, looking at sort of the importance of this, this is a tremendously important geostrategic location in terms of shipping lanes in the Caribbean, right? And that is sort of where, in many ways, this story begins, you know, over 200 years ago. You also point out that once again, hospitals and schools collapsed from the uh, earthquake, homes were destroyed. And uh, entire communities were cut off from the outside world. Thousands died. This time, however, the capital was spared the worst. This is the second earthquake that happened in 2021. And yet, coming just over a month within the after the assassination of Haiti's president, Joven Jovenel Moise, uh, the government was in no better position to respond than it had been 11 years earlier. If the measure of success after a natural disaster is how much better prepared the country is for the next one, the 2021 earthquake served as a punctuation mark on the failures of the decades-long reconstruction period. What explains that lack of preparation? Who, or possibly, more importantly, what is responsible for that lack of preparation when they've had an earthquake in the past? I know that there are two volcanoes on Hispaniola, but they're both inactive, so I can understand the lack of preparation for that. But what explains the lack of preparation? Who's responsible and accountable for that lack of preparation for another earthquake? 
Yeah, it's a great question to start with here. And I think, you know, obviously there's blame to go around, right? I mean, you know, no one individual or one actor is entirely deterministic of, of the events that take place. But, you know, we do have to look at sort of these broader dynamics that are at play. And so, you know, as I explain in, in the book, right, I mean, when you're talking about preparing for a natural disaster, it's it's investing about an uncertain future, right? It's an event that you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know where where it's going to happen. Uh, you know, when you have limited resources, you make very difficult decisions about what you're going to spend your money on. But I compare the budget of Haiti is similar to like the budget of Boston's, right? Eh, but for a city, for a country of 12 million people, there wasn't really a choice for the Haitian government in terms of investing in long-term preparation versus short-term immediate needs, right? And obviously, this is where I think, you know, especially the role of the international community comes in. After 2010 and the devastating earthquake, the international community pledged $10 billion to build back better, to, to do this reconstruction right, and pledging that they had learned from the mistakes of the past, right? I think it's sort of the narrative we hear uh, each time something comes up and the U.S. wants to act. It's, oh, yeah, we learned the mistakes from the past. We're going to do it better this time. But those donors made the same exact decisions that the resource-starved state made, right? They didn't want to invest in long-term sort of things to prepare for the next disaster. They wanted sexy relief projects that they could put in brochures and sell to donors or sell to Congress here to keep their budgets flowing. The priorities, the incentives, they're just not there to actually make these sorts of decisions that would be beneficial for the long run. So was tourism the focus of a redevelopment policy? Because as we've learned here on the show, tourism is something that often brings intense inequality to an area. Yeah, there was a real uh, sort of irony here, right? That the the sort of new development plan for Haiti, well, it looked a lot like the old development plan. It was tourism and sweatshops, right? Low-wage garment manufacturing for export. Now, this was basically a rehash of the economic development model that Haiti saw in the late 70s and 80s under the Duvalier dictatorship when Haiti was praised as the Taiwan of the Caribbean. Now here we are 30 years later pitching the same thing as some sort of new model, right? Of course, the results were largely the same. Big displacements of rural populations for mega projects that only further consolidated the status quo and increased inequality even further. The Taiwan of the of the United States is kind of uh, funny because uh, Taiwan wants its independence from China. So I'm pretty sure that Haiti wants its independence from the United States and the West as well. You compare the events, uh, the nation building, if you will, that takes place in Haiti to what happened in Afghanistan. How do you see those two events in common? Was the U.S. occupation of Haiti a hundred years earlier any more or less? of a success or a failure than the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan 100 years later? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, you can draw some parallels, and not just because prior to Afghanistan, that occupation of Haiti was the longest in U.S. military history, right? But you also just look at what comes along with it, right? And I think this is, what are we talking about with state building? And you were talking about this in the introduction, right? But this imposition of a state, right? A state imposed and propped up by outside actors. And of course, that is not going to work. That is not going to last. And it's inherently going to generate the kind of instability that that occupation, that intervention was ostensibly there to prevent, right? And so again, just these examples of, of blowback where U.S. policies sort of seeking one thing, or at least, you know, uh, being framed as for one purpose, like reducing instability, uh, are actually generating the very instability <laughs> that is causing those problems. 
And I think you know the other parallel, right? We're not just looking at Haiti a century ago, right? I mean, one of the reasons why I draw that parallel in the book is because at the same time as that occupation of Afghanistan was happening, Haiti was also under military occupation, right? And it wasn't U.S. troops. Uh, and so it didn't get the same attention, uh, certainly from the West, certainly from the United States, but it was no less U.S. managed and no less, uh, you know, uh, uh, no less, um, you know, in terms of the actual implications for that country, right? No different than if there was an actual U.S. military occupation, right? The difference in Haiti from 2004 to 2017 was that was an occupation that was led by the United Nations, right? Ostensibly peacekeeping troops, more than 10,000 of them who were in the country for, for over a decade. So was the purpose or point of U.N. Uh, deployment to Haiti instead of U.S. force deployment, do you think the purpose of that may have been to even obscure the United States role that it was playing in Haiti at the time? Yeah, and I, I don't think this. This is what U.S. policymakers wrote in cables that have since been, uh, you know, released through FOIA or, or through WikiLeaks. Right? We can see them giving this exact rationale. Right? This was seen as a huge foreign policy win for the United States to have countries of the global South. Brazil took the lead of the United Nations mission in Haiti. And this was great for the U.S. for a couple of reasons. One, it gave them some distance, right? It says, oh, this isn't the U.S. occupying Haiti again. This is its neighbors. This is the hemisphere, right? But it's also a lot cheaper, right? The U.S. was looking to save money. And basically, it was a lot cheaper to do this through the U.N. and have other countries contribute troops than to have 10,000 U.S. soldiers on the ground for over a decade. If Brazilian forces were there, then how much control did the U.S. have? How much influence did other nations like Brazil have in that reconstruction uh, after the earthquake? Yeah, I think this is a really important point, right? I mean, it, we talk about the U.S. and I talk about the U.S. a lot. I think, you know, in, in a lot of ways, we're using the U.S. as a stand-in for something broader, often referred to as sort of the international community when we're talking about Haiti, right? So with 2004, this this followed the ouster, the coup of John Bertrand Aristide, uh, and U.S. troops did actually were the first on the ground. They arrived first, and within a month, they were replaced by these U.N. troops. And alongside that, right, it wasn't just a military occupation, it was a political occupation, right? So of course this coup just happened, but then there was this thing called the core group that was set up with all the major donor countries. So you had the US, Canada, France, the traditional donors, but also Brazil and some of these other actors, as well as the Organization of American States, right, the hemispheric body, the United Nations, et cetera, et cetera. And they operated as one, right? And so you saw a lot of other countries that maybe you would expect to provide some counterbalance to U.S. influence in the region really just join forces and move forward lockstep with U.S. policy. And really, for the last 20 years, right, that core group, while there have been little um, – you know, conflicts here and there, disagreements between partners, they've really moved as one and more directly as the United States. So you write that in Afghanistan, the U.S. spend uh, spent billions in an effort to prop up unpopular presidents from Hamid Karzai to Ashraf Ghani, as in Haiti, the only thing keeping these leaders in power had been foreign support. You were talking about how the United States constantly says we've learned the lessons from our past. Is the lesson that a politician who depends on outside foreign support in an invaded and occupied nation leads to failed nation building? Is that lesson that putting a proxy in power is not a winning strategy? And why has the U.S. clearly not learned the lesson that propping up a politician who is not popular is not successful in what the U.S. claims to be nation building? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. But I think, you know, we also have to take a step back and, and flip this around a little bit, right? Like what the goals of the U.S. in terms of what they state publicly versus what the actual goals are, right? And so, you know, we can look at U.S. policy in Haiti, Afghanistan as a failure because for the people of Afghanistan and Haiti, it has been a failure. But that's not necessarily to say that that has been a failure for the United States, right? Because when we're talking about stability, we've got to step back and say stability for whom? right? Who is actually benefiting from that? What is the purpose of these policies? And this is one thing, you know, obviously I'm, I'm writing a lot about Haiti and I think you can see it there really clearly, right? The money that we put in this thing, like all of these resources that we're pushing at Haiti, this is not actually about Haiti, right? This is about us, right? It's about the ways in which we enrich companies back home, which we open markets for our companies abroad, right? Our alliances with local elites who are more aligned with the United States and have family and houses and businesses here than in their home countries, right? And so it's it's these things that are actually being supported through these policies. And I think it's a question if that's a success or a failure as far as U.S. policymakers are concerned. So how is democracy viewed in a place like Haiti or Afghanistan for that matter, but you're an expert on Haiti. How is democracy uh, you know, viewed by people in Haiti when they see this kind of democracy, the kind of democracy that the United States is pushing on them, which is not democracy at all. It's about putting profits over people. So how does that affect the way that the people of Haiti view democracy more generally? Do they Can they see through the fog of propaganda from the United States that this is democracy? Or do they completely, does it make them unhappy about the whole democratic ideal? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And we've seen some really interesting changes over the last 20 plus years in Haiti, right? So history shows that if Haitians have actual faith in the process, they will turn out and vote, right? We've seen huge turnout elections that have brought left-wing progressive leaders to power in Haiti's history, right? So that belief in democracy, that belief in the power of the people is is ripe. And I mean, that goes back, again, centuries in Haiti. Um, you know, we can go back to the, to the successful slave revolt, et cetera, et cetera. But what we've seen since, right, what we've seen over the last really 20 years is a rapid decline in Haitians' faith in democracy. So, you know, these surveys are always a little bit problematic, but we've seen faith in democracy drop to the lowest levels in the hemisphere in Haiti. And I think, you know, it's impossible not to relate that to the intervention of international actors. And I think this comes in a number of different forms very direct ways, like the 2004 coup or in 2010 after the earthquake. When the U.S., the OAS, and others threatened the Haitian government, pulled visas, threatened to withhold aid if they didn't overturn arbitrarily the results of their election, right? So we see those very direct uh, ways in which U.S. and other international actors choose Haiti's ostensibly democratic leaders. That obviously sends a message. What 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 point is their voting if my vote's not going to actually matter? But it also plays out in other sort of more soft power ways, right? And I think this is, you know, getting back to to the book, aid state, and to some of these ways that we don't really often pay attention to how our policies impact things over the longer term, right? So what we've seen in Haiti with this tremendous influx of aid over a period of decades is basically the wholesale outsourcing of the state. Public services are in the hands of NGOs, private sector actors, church groups, multilateral development banks, et cetera, et cetera. This is a very similar dynamic in Afghanistan. Public services were provided, funded entirely by the donor community, right? But what does that actually show to the to the Haitian people, the Afghanistan people, right? It's it, it disassociates the government 
from the people, right? You can't hold those external actors accountable for those public services that you demand or that you want or that you should be getting from your taxpayers, et cetera, right? They're totally divorced from the political reality in your country. And so the government itself is very absent. And so what does it matter who's in power with your government when it's these external actors who are actually the ones involved in my day-to-day life, right? Unfortunately, there are no elections. Asians don't get to vote in our elections, right? And so they have very few ways to try and influence those actors. So again, I think you can see both the direct and indirect ways in which this sort of hollows out the democracy over the longer term. So is this an over is it an oversimplification to say that when the United States says that they are going to be involved in some sort of military operation, whatever term they're going to use, police action, whatever word that they want to use, is the intended purpose not to bring democracy to a country, but to make a country a dependency. And if that is the case, how does that, what does that, uh, how does that change the way that we understand U.S. foreign policy? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's uh, it's simple, but I think effective, right? I, I would use a slightly different term. I mean, dependency, yes, but I think it's it's more part of the uh, global economic system that the U.S. is a part of and leads, right? So part of their hegemonic empire, right, basically, is it's removing the areas of resistance, right? That is ultimately, I think, what's motivating U.S. policy in many of these cases, And because of global economic changes, and I think this is maybe starting to change to a certain extent, right? But it it didn't take as much direct involvement, right? So you saw, for example, uh, in Haiti, with the end of Duvalier in the 1980s, and it's sort of, but the the neoliberalism that was foisted upon the global South, right? And this is another way, again, it wasn't the same mechanism, right, through direct deployment of troops and things like that. But setting those parameters of what a country can actually accomplish sovereign, right? And so all of these things, I think, are pushing in that same direction, which is not necessarily dependent, uh, but certainly part of the same uh, the same U.S.-run system. We are speaking with Jake Johnson, who has returned to the show to talk about his new book, Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. So as you know, and I I think we maybe even has discussed this in the past. The U.S. establishment media often blames a failure of U.S. nation building on local leaders that are corrupt without ever asking the question, who corrupted them? So, Jake, who corrupted the leadership in Afghanistan or more importantly, Haiti? Who or what should be held responsible and accountable for the corruption that the establishment media here in the U.S. claims is the reason that these this nation building fails? Yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, it's it's easy to look at a country like Haiti and say, oh, it, its leaders are incapable. People are incapable. Oh, there's too much corruption. Right? I mean, the idea that Haitians have a monopoly on corruption is, is ludicrous, right, as I think most people in our country can probably understand. I mean, it's not like there isn't corruption here. In many ways, we've simply legalized it. But I'll, I'll just give one anecdote to really sort of make this point clear in terms of Haiti. Right. So we're in a situation now in Haiti Obviously, there's tremendous violence, a lot of uh, gang activity, armed groups in the capital, violence is soaring, uh, an illegitimate government. We've had the international community implement some sanctions. Uh, the UN is doing some investigative work around you know, this issue as well. And they're targeting a former president, Michel Martelly. Now, the UN recently put out a report saying he was you know, politicizing and funding armed groups to advance his political goals. 
well, how did he become president, right? And he came president in what I was describing earlier as the 2010 overturning of that election. That wasn't anything other than the arbitrary overturning of an election based upon pressure from the international community, right? So you can blame him, but who put him there, right? And I think we have to look at this. And I think it's also not just about looking back and assigning blame, right? I mean, for me, this is about changing policy and where things can be done differently moving forward, right? So yes, we can look at that blame, but it's important not just to assign the blame, but to realize what mistakes were made to put us into this position and how this policy can change moving forward to actually do something different and change that underlying dynamic. You were mentioning the gang activity there and the violence. You write, there is no functioning government, no president, no legislature, not even a working Supreme Court. It would be hard to identify one state institution that is operating as it should. Armed groups closely linked with politicians and the economic elite control more than half of the capital of Port-au-Prince. So last week we were talking with the Institute for Policy Studies, uh, John Kavanaugh, about the re-election of Naib Bukele as uh, El Salvador's president. Bukele won over 80% of the vote, as John explained. That's because Bukele has cracked down hard on gang violence. Although this has led to mass arrests and incarceration and undermining of human rights, El Salvador had become so run by gang, run over by gangs, that safety and security were voters' top priority. Do you think the same thing is happening in Haiti, that the top priority of Haitians isn't rights or democracy, but safety and security? Are they vulnerable to a strongman as El Salvador is and with U.S. support of that strongman? I think, you know, at a base level, yes, obviously, right? I, I mean, daily life, certainly in the capital and increasingly outside of Port-au-Prince as well, is virtually impossible, right? I mean, you, you're... Schools are closed. You can't go shopping. You can't do anything, right? So just leaving the house is is putting your life on the line. And in that environment, yes, the first priority is security, right? There's no doubt. I think the question becomes, right, what is the actual mechanism to provide that security, right? And I think that becomes this huge question. What we've seen, you talked about, we were, I was on the show, what is it now, almost seven years ago, talking about the arrest of uh, Guy Philippe paramilitary leader, coup plotter, who was backed by the U.S. in 2004, that coup we were talking about earlier, uh, received U.S. support and, and helped sort of push Aristide out back in the day. Uh, you know, we were talking seven years ago about his arrest on drug trafficking charges. Well, he was released from prison this past fall, deported back to Haiti, and he's now got another paramilitary group and is running around Haiti saying he's the answer, right? He's the one to take on these gangs. You can see how this comes full circle, right? right? I mean, it, we've just seen it. Um, and despite that history, this is somebody who's who's garnering greater support. Now, I think we have to look at a lot of the ways in which U.S. policy is driving that, right? So again, who is in charge of Haiti right now? There is one person, a de facto prime minister, who rose to power basically on a tweet and a press release from the core group right after the assassination of President Moise in 2021, and he's held power ever since. There's no checks and balances. There's no power sharing. It's all powers consolidated there. And in those two years plus years he's been in power, the situation has gone from bad to worse. So you, you cite there 50 percent of the capital uh, that I wrote at the time. You know, it, it's probably closer to 80 or 90 percent now. Right. Things are only getting worse. Yet all the power has been with this one person. And that's driving people uh, say, you know, we got to get rid of this guy. And who's the one who's now, you know, 
showing the strength like he's the one who can do that it's Guy Philippe right and so people are drawn to to somebody who can try and you know who is at least making the case that this guy needs to go and something needs to be done differently uh, so again yeah I mean I think you can see exactly how these policies blow back um, on the U.S. And, and on the Haitian people more importantly you write that when it comes to Afghanistan for Americans, the root causes that drove thousands to leave their home country were impossible to overlook. The Taliban was a common enemy. There was even bipartisan support. The Biden administration responded by evacuating an initial 37,000 Afghans to the U.S. for resettlement. So when it came to Haiti, however, the reaction was different. The first nation to permanently abolish slavery, Haiti's inequities, and the role of the United States in perpetuating them had been systematically obscured from public view for centuries. Few Americans had ever learned about an 1804 revolution or that the nation was forced to pay a financially crippling freedom ransom for nearly 150 years, which is one of the most disturbing parts of Haitian history. In your opinion... <laughs> Why isn't this history taught in U.S. schools? What is it about public education in the U.S. that leads to things like the role of the U.S. in Haiti's history not being taught? Yeah, it's a big question, Jack. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think there's there's any number of reasons, right? I mean, institutional racism, overt racism, uh, you know, the sort of core beliefs in in uh, our country and how to perpetuate that. You know, as I write in the book, I mean, right, looking at Haiti's history means confronting our own hypocrisies, right? And that's just something that we're not very good at doing, frankly. And I think, you know, some of this is, you know, we can talk about a revolution 200 years ago. How does that apply to today, right? I mean, I think it's not always in direct direct ways, but the institutions, right, that both, like, I, I never learned about this stuff in school, right? I don't, I don't, I don't know many people that did, right? But also just how we interact with the world, right? How do we perpetuate this stuff? USAID, our foreign policy establishment, the State Department. I mean, these things are steeped in this history, right? And they really haven't changed that much. They still have that sort of uh, institutional racism and an ingrained sort of imperialism built right into it. I mean, that is that is <laughs> their uh, you know their their guiding principle, and so it, it makes sense, right? I mean, it's not um, you know it, it might be bad, but I think we can understand why it is that people aren't taught this because you start questioning things when you start looking at policy in Haiti. You start questioning much bigger things. You mentioned uh, somebody who's actually, people don't know his name, but is got a lot of fame from a photograph that was very disturbing. You write, Miran Joseph and his wife, Madeline uh, Prosper, left Haiti in 2017, two of some 100,000 Haitians who migrated to Chile that year. In 2020, the couple welcomed their first child, a baby girl, but the COVID pandemic changed everything. The economy cooled, businesses shuttered, and lockdowns worse. The conservative president in Chile took the pandemic as an opportunity to crack down on the recent increase in immigration, especially of Haitians. Before we get to why uh, Mirand, unfortunately, became somewhat famous, is this unique then, in, is the U.S. unique in not admitting Haitians who have fled violence, violence the U.S. contributed to in a variety of ways. Is the U.S. much like the rest of the Americas or the rest of the world in not willing to admit Haitians? And if so, again, why? Yes. I mean, I think simply yes, right? I mean, you see this from, from Haiti's neighbors, from the Dominican Republic, who has stripped Haitians there of citizenship in the past, and who has, you know, treated the Haitian population there abysmally for years. The Bahamas and others who are now supporting military intervention in Haiti 
because of their own interest around reducing Haitian migration uh, to countries throughout South America that at times have accepted Haitians, but when political winds change, have have betrayed those same populations. And I think you know this speaks to a greater issue and dynamic, I think, in, in Haiti's relationship uh, to the world, but more specifically in its own hemisphere, right? And I, I think the reality is that since its founding, right? I mean, 1804, okay, Haiti's founded, the Constitution abolishes slavery, this is an independent nation. It, it took the United States 60 years to recognize Haiti, right? Um, you know, it wasn't accepted into the sort of world of nations for a very long time. And I think in many ways that sort of continues. Latin America continues to view Haiti as the other. I think this is steeped in racism, uh, you know, and, and, it, and it perpetuates this dynamic, but it, it's really unfortunate to see because I think, you know, one thing that Haiti desperately needs is other powers in the world willing to stand up and provide an alternative to give it the ability to balance these powers off one another, and especially the United States. And there are progressive governments in Latin America who could have played that role uh, in the past and who could play that role today. And unfortunately, we, we don't see them stepping up to do so, but rather sort of getting in line behind U.S. policy once again. So Moran Joseph and his family, uh, they instead go to try to get into the United States via the U.S.-Mexico border. And you talk about how they stayed under the Del Rio Bridge on the United States side. But as you point out, many would travel, many of the immigrants who were staying underneath that bridge, many would travel back to Mexico to find basic supplies and food, making the dangerous cross through the Rio Grande on a near daily basis. On September 19th, Joseph was on his way back to the Del Rio camp with two plastic bags. I'm getting chills just reading this. Full of food when he saw them. The administration had dispatched hundreds of additional border patrol agents at Del Rio, now somewhere on horseback, watching as he and dozens of others waded through the water. As Joseph emerged onto U.S. soil, an agent charged at him, lashing with his reins. The agent grabbed his collar, began to drag him back to the Rio Grande encampment. A photojournalist happened to be standing nearby and captured the entire episode in heart-wrenching detail. The images went viral and shocked the nation's conscience. But, Jake, did it shock the nation's conscience so much that it led to changes in public opinions or government policy when it comes to Haitian refugee migration into the United States or any change of opinion on immigration? No, and I think this this you know this this explains sort of this dynamic uh, perfectly, which is the response wasn't to say, "Oh my God, this is awful. We need to support this population." It was, "We need to clear the camp as quickly as humanly possible, so this is no longer a PR problem for us." Right, and that's exactly what they did. Some people certainly got into the United States and, and went through that immigration process, but far, far more were simply deported back to Haiti, right? A country that we share a significant responsibility in destabilizing and creating the conditions to from which they're fleeing in the first place, right? But again, the priority was removing it from the public view, not actually changing that policy or doing anything differently. And so while we got lots of criticisms, I mean, the VP was critical of it, you know, leaders throughout the country, very critical of the imagery, right, of what they saw. Uh, and yet those underlying policies have remained remarkably consistent. You know, the Biden administration, I mean, this is Biden's presidential campaign, right, against the hard lines of Trump, who demonized Haitians, called Haitians the shithole country, right, all of this stuff. And it was, you know, restoring this, uh, you know, humanity to this process. The Biden administration has deported 
somewhere around 30,000 Haitians uh, in the last couple of years, right? So this is a policy that has continued uh, in a really, really appalling manner. And at the same time, the United States, certainly aware of the situation on the ground, they've basically closed the embassy, withdrawn their own personnel because they can't guarantee their safety, yet it's the same situation that we're sending thousands upon thousands of Haitians back into. Point out that uh, Haiti needs security and humanitarian assistance. You quote an appointee, Daniel Foote, who worked for the Biden administration, who in the immigration and uh, immigration, and he said that I will not be associated with the United States inhumane, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees. Uh, so uh, you then quote uh, Foot writing that what our Haitian friends really want and need is the opportunity to chart their own course without international uh, puppeteering and favored candidates, but with genuine support for that course. I do not believe that Haiti can enjoy stability until her citizens have the dignity of truly choosing their own leadership and fairly and acceptably. As of now, Jake, how likely does that appear? Well, look, I mean, in terms of U.S. policy playing a productive role in making that happen, not very likely. But I think, you know, on the other hand, right, we have to be optimistic, too, about the future. And, and for Haiti, you know, I, I write in the book, right, I mean, Haiti is not a failed state, right? Haiti's an aid state. We have to understand the context that has led it to fail, right? But that does not mean that the state is not failing, right? The state is failing to provide for its people, to be accountable to its people. But that's not inherently a bad thing, Right. The state that existed in Haiti was a state that did not represent the people, that was more in tune and aligned with foreign interests and responsive to foreign interests than the Haitian people. For something new, for that genuine sovereign democracy to be built, the aid state had to collapse, right? And I think, you know, we can uh, talk about what is needed to make sure that collapse and what comes next is is allowed to happen and does not result in even more unnecessary deaths, right? But that process is taking place. Haitians are organizing against all odds, risking their lives every day to try and build that sovereign democracy. And I think that's where you take hope from, right? And you chip away at US policy and trying to make them uh, at least not prevent that process from taking place. And of course, on the US side, it's an uphill battle. You write that the Biden appointee on immigration, Daniel Foote, pointed out that the U.S. and its allies in the international community were doing it again, backing an unelected prime minister, Ariel Henry, who had taken uh, office after the assassination of President Moise, rather than a broad based initiative led by Haitian civil society organizations. And you quote Foote adding the hubris that makes us believe we should pick the winner again is impressive. If the the problem is hubris, which has caused the U.S. government and the public, American society and culture for that matter, to have so many failures, why does the U.S. have so much self-confidence? Why hasn't that shaken that self-confidence? Why are we proud when U.S. foreign policy and wars around the world have proven to be such deadly failures? Why is the only tool in the toolbox, Jake, still the hammer of imposing military and market solutions on everyone in order to solve all our problems? Yeah, I mean, that that's the question, right? I mean, I think the simple answer is because the alternative doesn't seem more appetizing to them, right? Which is actually letting this process play out. That's one you don't control, right? So yeah, it might not work, but this is the best chance we've got to actually try and control it. You know what I mean? And so, sure, again, we have to go back to, you know, what is working? What is not working? What does it mean to work, right? Uh, is a success for the U.S. simply preventing the, that independence, Right. Uh, Is that a success, even if what they're creating is not actually good? 
Uh, and so, you know, again, here's this, this, this sort of same question, but like, what is success for the U.S.? What are they really after here? I think hubris, yes, but it's also just, uh, you know, understanding that this is the system we've built. I mean, this is the people who are making these decisions. You know, the reality is that Haiti is not a overwhelming priority in Washington, right? It's not right now with other things going on in the world, and it's not generally, right? And so who's making these decisions? It's often not made at the top. It's made further down. But these people, their interests are not Haiti, right? I mean, they're looking to get the next promotion. They're looking to next, get, get their next job to sort of check the box, to move on. And this just perpetuates it, right? I, I think genuinely a lot of these folks don't even actually think these policies are working. It's simply them doing their jobs, right? And so I think we have to sort of attack the entire system here, right? This isn't just uh, the actions of a few individuals, um, but again, these are the structures that, that we've built up over a long, long time. You write that aid state, as in the title of your book, Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism and the Battle to Control Haiti, is the latest in a long series of foreign-led attempts to manage Haiti. The basic principle underlying the analysis that the Haitian state has become divorced from the interests and needs of the Haitian people themselves is something Haitian scholars have filed li or filled libraries examining for well over a century. It is their work that informs this contemporary application. Again, is that, because I, mean, I, I want people to think about I think that your book makes people think about aid in a different way than it is, you know, usually thought about. Is that the intention of aid to disempower locals and to empower outsiders bursting with self-confidence? Is, is the idea that when we hear the words humanitarian aid, that sounds great. You really want to help out other people. But is the intention of aid really not to help out the people of wherever the aid is going? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's a difficult conversation and a nuanced one, right? And I think there's also various different kinds of aid, right? There's humanitarian aid, development aid, right? There's aid from your mom and pop nonprofit, and there's aid from USAID that's going to, you know, for-profit companies that are raking in billions of dollars in government contracts every year, right? So there's a whole host of this world. And so I don't want to cast a broad brush and say every effort to help is inherently bad, right? I don't think that's the case. And I don't think the implication of that is is what we're looking for. But I think there is a sense in which, you know, we take short-term actions without ever appreciating the long-term consequences, right? And to the extent that anybody does appreciate those long-term consequences, they're not really concerns, right? They're not a big deal. And that's sort of the problem, right? And so we've seen this just repeat time and time and time again. But so, yes, I mean, Haitians need food after a natural disaster. People are hungry. But where does that food come from? Is it subsidized rice from the U.S. that you're dumping onto a local market and undermining farmers, right? Or are you trying to work with local communities to source things locally and help with the distribution and make sure that that's actually supporting the local community while you're doing it? Uh, those are very different things. Aid, The aid is not the problem. It's how that aid is delivered, right? And I think here we get into... Again, going back to what I was saying, sort of these structures that we've built up over time. I mean, even if you wanted to do that differently, if you're a U.S. policymaker, you're running USAID and you want to do that differently, you can't. Your hands are tied. There is legislation, right? There are laws on the books that prevent you from doing that kind of work, from buying things locally. You have to use U.S. goods. You have to ship them on U.S. ships, right? This is the system we created. Why did we create that? Because for policymakers, uh, yeah, their interest is not in the development of Haiti, right? It, it, it's their own political careers and their own constituents. And that's what these policies are first and foremost supporting, certainly from the U.S. perspective. 
So you write that today in Washington, New York, Ottawa, Paris, Brussels, the question pertaining to Haiti is framed as a decision between intervening or not. The reality is that foreign intervention never stopped. The question, therefore, is whether to continue intervening or at long last to stand in solidarity with the Haitian people as they chart their own future free from foreign meddling and elite state capture. So are the only two options the West is contemplating to intervene or not, and that's it? Is there any consideration of helping the people of Haiti without military, without this uh, um, employment of an aid state strategy, uh, is there any other option being considered other than military intervention or not? Well, I think being considered in, in, certainly in some quarters, certainly in some places, right? But by the major policymakers and major governments that are determining policy in Haiti, no, we basically frame this as, you know, there's a plan A and there is no plan B. And plan A is sending uh, you know, a, a group of Kenyan police uh, with UN Security Council authorization to Haiti to try and combat armed groups and, and provide some semblance of security. Now, this has been a plan that's been on the table now for 16 plus months. And over that time frame, as we've been talking, things have just gotten worse and worse and worse. Right. I mean, you'd think that maybe you could step back and say, well, instead of putting all our eggs in this military intervention basket that we're not even sure that we could ever pull off. We should have thought about how to actually support actors on the ground to do something about this situation today, right? But now the situation is getting so bad where they say, well, it's so bad, this is the only option, right? And so these policies are self-reinforcing too, right? You're creating the problem, making it worse, and then saying, well, this is the only option forward. But I think also when we're getting at with this question of intervention, right, you know, it's not just about hard power intervention or military force, right? It's it's the ways, the, the quiet ways that we're intervening every day. And I think, you know, that gets back to this question of, of U.S. continued support for Ariel Henry, the current de facto prime minister. You know, I talk to friends in Haiti all the time. I mean, yes, they, they need security, a lot of whom, despite sort of ideological and historical reasons for being, you know, adamantly opposed to foreign intervention, they have zero faith in their government right now. Right. And I think that's an important context you have to, to have to have here. And in that environment, you have zero faith in your government uh, being able to do anything. You'll take help from where you think you can get it, right? Even if you don't think it's a long-term solution, you just you just need to live today, right? That's the priority. But when you say, well, what if this force comes and just backs up uh, the prime minister, keeps him in power till the next election? It's like, well, no, I don't want that, right? Because it, it's a it's two prong, right? You can't just have security. These things are all interrelated. And by propping up this de facto government that's not doing anything. You're driving people to, to seek these sort of uh, wild external solutions, but at the same time, preventing uh, the actual problem from being addressed, right? Which is, again, a state that is not responsive to the people. And you can see this now with what, what sort of seems to be the overriding plan forward for the international community in Haiti, which is bringing in foreign police and going forward with this de facto prime minister, Ariel Henry, and having elections as quickly as possible to move on. And we've already had a long conversation around what those elections are likely to look like, right? Extremely low turnout, controlled by violent actors, and producing a body politic that is no more representative of the Haitian people or no more able to provide a durable solution. We have been speaking with Jake Johnson, who has returned to This Is Hell to talk about his new book, Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. 
He is a research, uh, I'm sorry, senior research associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. You can find out more about CEPR and find Jake's writing at CEPR.net. You can follow CEPR on X at CEPRDC and find Jake on X at Jacob Johnston. That's with a K and a T. One last question for you. And as you know, it's always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that Haiti was as the obligatory journalistic descriptor went, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, no explanation needed. The country was politically unstable, but few cared to ponder why. And you add later that the immigration official from the Biden administration, Daniel Foote, uh, said that he uh, said didn't uh, come as a surprise to most Haitians. Over the decades plus I'd been traveling of ha- through Haiti, I had heard a similar analysis countless times. That what was surprising was that a U.S. diplomat had said it, and that was the statement about the arrogance and the hubris of the United States. So how integral is that not asking why Two, the arrogance, the excessive pride, that sense of being far too self-confident, that hubris, integral, essential, and fundamental to the national identity of the United States. How important is not asking why to the arrogance and the self-confidence that is so embedded within U.S. culture and society? Yeah, I mean, frankly, I think it's it's everything, right? Uh, you know, for, for me, the only way this changes is if enough people realize how absurd our policies are and the damaging effect they're having and demand change because, you know, what we've seen is that policymakers aren't going to make these choices on their own. Right. And so the only way we begin to change that is to start with that question of why. And I just wish more people would ask it. It's just very, it's always really funny that you look at the word radical and it goes back to the idea of root causes. And root causes is something that can be revealed by asking the question why. There's people in the permaculture movement who say, just ask the question why three times and you'll get to the answer. But boy, here in the United States, we really don't want to know why, which seems to be having, that's a lot of what the whole critical race theory uh, debate is about right now. We just don't want to ask why. And it's really, really disappointing. Jake, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being back on. Talk to you in 2030, I think. We'll do that. <laughs> Sounds perfect. Always a pleasure. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll work out a date for 2030 in a couple of minutes. I'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell. If you learn from our talk with Jake how the U.S. weaponizes aid to overthrow democracy and impose authoritarians in Haiti and, frankly, all over the world, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting this is hell.com and simply clicking on support back up. Please remind us what is this week's question from hell and share with us how our listeners are responding at our welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. This week's question from hell comes from Garrett S who left the suggestion on our welcome to the Hellhole Facebook page. Why do you think we will survive 2024? And we did include the why. And we have from Gen D, I have to because I don't have any sick days, and that got a lot of likes. <laughs> uh, Lisa MP said, I work with children, so my immune system is way too strong. Oh, there you go. And Terry M says, I'll be driven into 2025 by the power of my state of rising fury. Uh-huh. Okay. 
Jeff C says, I live in Australia and guns are highly re regulated. And that got a couple likes. There you go. Uh, Lady S.O. said, I just want to see how this whole dang shit show plays out <laughs> inside an underground, hermetically sealed clean room at an undisclosed location. <laughs> uh, our Ronaldo M. says, I plan to survive by eating my vegetables, looking both ways before I cross the street, guarding my personal information, avoiding war zones, and taking care not to trust anyone to easily. <laughs> well. Beautiful. And then Martin S. says, excellently bent. Uh, Joanne C. says, tough question. I'm hoping to get through next week. My scarier question is this. Even if Biden wins, do you think Trump will still become president? Yikes. Yikes. Uh, June P. says, I've been taking various hangover cures introduced by Chuck whenever I consume a bit too much alcohol. That should keep me healthy enough for the, the last 10 more months. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Pen D. says, not one of them callable yet. And another Australian, Pen D. <laughs> As always, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell. You can leave it at our Facebook group page. You can post it in our Discord community or on X at this is hell radio. Or if you're a subscriber and we hope you are, you can give your answer to this week's question from hell on our pa uh, Patreon page at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. And we'll tell you who our final guest of the week will be, as well as what Seb Vooper is up to on the past inside the present. And, and uh, there you go. Yeah, that's what's happening. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I ask were written while I was sadly sober. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. One more Taint necessarily. So? Lately, my innards have been in a Gordian sailor's rhubarb about all the fascism, all the bloody fascism. We have the European romance with fascism in Hungary, France, Poland, you name it. We have the hands-on fascist destruction of human life and civil structures in Gaza by Israel. We have fascism on our southern border with Texas's governor, the woefully Costello-less Abbott ready to deputize the Proud Boys and the National Guards of several other states to enforce summary executions of immigrants against the expected objections of the federal government. We have the blaring voices of demagogues all over the world, treating any policy remotely related to equality, environmentalism, or the collective good as a communist menace, and urging cops and vigilantes to handle advocates for such policies the way the Nazis handled their undesirables. And of course... Reigning over all of them, we have the ongoing absorption of economic power by the financial vampire class. It's always there, like the cosmic microwave background radiation. It's the fascist queen of the fascist hive, fed and protected by all the other fascisms, the vassal fascisms, over which it rules. And last but not least is the turd treacle trail, the yellow bile brick road, the pathway out of the explicable universe through the looking glass and down the rabbit hole, thence to emerge in the gloomy forest of insane conspiracies where whispering 
Twisted Willows tell of secret meetings of the elders of Zion and Davos, meetings where the Masonic Brotherhood and the Illuminati hash out details of the Great Reset, the Great Replacement, and other unstoppable plans to castrate white Christian men and rob them of their rightful claim to dominion over the family and the earth. The spokespeople or spooks people for this worldview are a zany crew of cranks with obnoxiously vast followings. What nutty narratives will they be peddling this spring? Let's take a sneak peek at what's in and what's out in Trump Crazy Q land. Adrenochrome farms, where babies are kept in ranks of suspended animation pods and drained of their oxidized adrenaline? The resulting violet fluid pumped into the blood of the elites upon whom it confers added longevity up to and including immortality? A totally believable bubamisa of great concern to serious opponents of child trafficking, such as Tim Ballard. Played by Jim Caviezel in the surprise hit garbage movie Sound of Freedom, Ballard was forced to resign from the Operation Underground Railroad, the grifty anti-child trafficking organization, and fired as CEO from Glenn Beck's Nazarene Fund amid several allegations, now lawsuits, of sexual abuse and grooming, because of course he was. The governor of Utah denounced him, and his book on which the Caviezel movie was based was pulled from publication by its Mormon publisher. So Adrenochrome Farms are out despite the success of the moronic and low-quality movie. Onward with the spring line, since COVID-19 refuses to disappear, those in the know feel safe in predicting that COVID denialism isn't going anywhere soon either. The trend in anti-vax insanity has been given a boost by two main spooks people, RFK Jr. and drunk stoner and HBO fixture Bill Maher. Mar can't really be a spokesman for the Christian nationalist wing of the anti-vax movement, though, because famous though he is for dating models, he has somehow, unlike Tim Ballard, avoided sexual misbehavior accusations. Yeah, Christian nationalists seem to love sexual assault perps, don't they? They frown on abortions in cases where the pregnancy was the result of rape, one assumes, because it would violate the parental rights of the rapist. Yet no one is predicting an extension to the logic behind the prosperity gospel's image of Christ as a lover of those who get rich on the backs of the poor. For example, no one expects a rise in popularity of Jesus gets the rapists, or some similar slogan, have a rapist's baby for Jesus. As for RFK Jr., since the debacle that was his Super Bowl commercial, he's now on course to leech away more Trump votes than Biden votes, but there's still a long way to go, as the Kansas City Chiefs' victory demonstrated. Coming from behind is not unheard of. The climate crisis worsens, so climate denialism will too. It's very likely any government, NGO, or community efforts to encourage responsible public behavior in order to curtail the spread of a plague or other disaster will only fuel a resurgence of fear-mongering about communist attempts to destroy the Enlightenment values of individual rights and freedoms. But even if no threats manifest to necessitate such initiatives, the smart monies on the dumb people doubling down on accusing everyone outside their inside out, out of their minds, in group of being communists and child molesters. Expect accusations of both witch hunts and witchcraft, especially since here in the United States, this is an election year. So, 
That's a yes to more anti-vax and anti-community health initiative conspiracies. No to the son of God being used to make sexual assault more popular than it already is. Yes for rapists, paternity rights. That's a no for adrenochrome farms. Yes for grifters fighting crimes they themselves commit. No for Bill Maher. Maybe for RFK Jr. Yes for climate denialism. Double yes for anti-communist conspiracies. And even more yes for anti-everyone who's not in the white Christian nationalist in-group. QAnon is on its way out. But the conspiratorial poison it's injected into public discourse continues its spread throughout the bloodstream of the body politic. The proliferation and tightening grip of tinfoil brain-wasting disease has some wondering. Is so much blatant stupidity enough to alienate voters from voting to the right? Will there be enough non-pilled voters left to steer the election, at least to the center-left? There's still a lot of anti-woke sentiment out there, but is it sufficiently synonymous with right-wing excesses to attach them at the hip in the minds of independents? Could the sheer florid lunacy of the conspiratorial landscape have overrun so much right-wing territory that the GOP brand is tainted? Make it so. Say yes to the taint. Yes to the taint. That's a great slogan, isn't it? Yes to the taint. The one wild card in all this is Hunter Biden's laptop. What the hell's happening there? Did the GOP really let that hot potato drop? Or are they holding it as a sleeper accusation, a dark horse talking point to pull out of their sleeves in an October surprise? It's a pretty lame dark horse. But they've been firing on all cylinders, blasting their garbage grifts at 11 for so long. What else do they have on their playlist? Again, it's too early to say. The only thing to say is... Yes to the taint. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. So those Jesus ads last year, they were funded by the CEO of Hobby Lobby. And everybody was up in arms about the fact that it's such an anti-LGBT, anti-abortion group. So I was doing a little bit of research and I found out that apparently whoever was funding it last time around, last year. Uh -huh. It's a different group now. It's some billionaire CEO. They're very secretive about who, what organizations that they are representing or what affiliations that he has. And so essentially, it's the same production company. It's the same material, not the exact same. They changed it from last year's commercials. Uh, but right. so basically the exact same thing. Then the next day, I see a headline, I think it was at Salon, saying that it was still owned by Hobby Lobby. So I have no idea. And you know, that's one thing about Jesus. Really, really opaque. He didn't want to be transparent in any way. He wanted to hide. Like, he didn't know who all of his disciples were. I mean, there were like 27 yeah. of them. You only heard about the, the big ones, you know? <laughs> 27. 27 disciples, that's new to me. Well, that's how it was, my friend. They kept all those other names secret. That's how... CEO Christ worked. Well, I heard, I, I don't know, I, I heard a bunch of stuff about where the money's coming from to fund that stuff. But we do know that wherever it comes from, it's not going to feed poor people. No. 14 million or billion or however. There's however no foot washing going on. However, what was it, 1,400 million? How much did it cost for those commercials? $14 million. Dollars. $14 million. That's a lot of... That's a lot of loaves and fishes. <laughs> that is. You could have opened up a deli. You could have opened up Russ and Daughters. <laughs> you could. Oh, man. I'd uh. love to just... 
I'd love fourteen million dollars worth of Russian daughter stuff right now. <laughs> a bagel, some herring. So, oh man, you got me hungry, Chuck. See, I know. I want to go home now and have a lox bagel, cream cheese, the Bermuda onion on it, and punchki for uh, dessert. Oh, I didn't get a punchki yesterday. I'm gonna go oh, when I get home. I'm actually. This is so. I'm actually having some delivered to my house. <laughs> What? <laughs> can I do that? <laughs> I don't know. Call up Benison's in uh, Evanston and ask them if they can send them to you. Yeah, that's the problem is we don't really have a Polish community here in uh, LA. You're We're like the Russians. closest it gets, isn't it? Yes, I am the Polish community. Here. You can smell cabbage <laughs> coming from my kitchen any time of day or night. <sighs> All those Belarusians pretending they're Polish. It's really weird. Hey, we were Poland for a while. Sure. We were. We were Poland one day. We were Russian another day. You don't remember the joke about, uh, boy, I hope we we're Poland this today after the fighting last night. I hope we we're part of Poland again. I can't take the Russian winters. <laughs> All right, Jeffy, on that note. What? Stay beautiful. Okay, you too. Live from Landstone from the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, the Miami, the Ho-Chunk, the Menominee, and Sac and Fox peoples, this is hell. Becca, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners on our Facebook page have responded. Uh, this week's question from hell comes from Garrett S., who said uh, on our Welcome to the Hell uh, Hole Facebook page, Why do you think we will survive 2024? And do you want me to read more? <laughs> yeah, that's good enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you have uh, Facebook responses? I didn't pull those up. Sorry, that'll take it's okay. a second. It's no, okay. We can do that later on because we're already up against the clock, and I want to make so certain that uh, Will doesn't do as much editing as possible. So we'll get to those tomorrow. Sounds good. Uh, and uh, who do we have scheduled to be our final guest for the week? All right. Our final guest is going to be J Jacob King Brown on the Vera Institute of Justice Report who wrote a piece called People on Electronic Monitoring. Uh, during the past inside – oh, sorry. Uh, so and also yes, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, during the past inside the present, Seb looks at the chaotic period of mandatory Palestine during World War II and how events during that time led up to the Arab-Israeli War in 1948. I had no idea that we were going to have two Jakes on it. <laughs> uh, we hope to see you throughout uh, the winter. For this is how office hours, our meet and greet that's really a drink and think, no matter the weather. Office hours are held every Wednesday, beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. The show you are currently listening to streams live on Wednesdays, which Wednesday, which means this evening is office hours. And the current weather forecast is it will be in the 30s all day. But oddly, it's going to be warming up as the day moves forward. And it's going to hit 40 right around sundown. So always look for me out back in the beer garden, around the fire pit. That's the that's This Is Hell office hours, which happen every Wednesday evening, beginning at around 6 p.m. Inside the warm and friendly confines of Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, or out back by the fire pit that is also very warm and friendly. Thanks to Becca Ridenauer for producing today's show. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz this is hell where we make learning about evil fun my demon is on my butt <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor and my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride 
Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>